Well, good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Ryan, and the rest of the worship team for leading us in worship. And uh, I, I do hope that you've had a great week. I am uh, Pastor Dallas, and I am one of the pastors on staff here. And uh, we've had a great week here in our office. Uh, pastor Rice, our youth pastor, was gone on vacation. And Pastor Brian went down to Florida with his family, and he forgot to put someone in charge. So um, it, was, uh, it was a great, great week. I think there's a saying, when the cat's away, the, I forget the rest of that saying. But it was, uh, let me just say, it was a very productive, unsupervised week. We had, we had a good time together, and... Um, I was especially a good week for, it was especially a good week for me because I was able to pour over a passage of scripture that I'm going to be sharing with you this morning. And uh, there are so many times we, we go and reread scripture and it is just so encouraging to us and refreshing and challenging and, and we're just so glad that we can benefit from God's word. And then there are those passages that we, we get to and we read those and we're kind of scratching our heads a little bit. And I got to tell you, this morning, it's one of those passages. It's one of those passages we're going to be looking at. And uh, if you could take your Bibles, our topic is the demands of discipleship. And we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. And there's this question that each one of us faces in life. And that's the question of what drives our lives? What is it that drives our lives? It's a little bit like the story of Gertrude and Mildred. Don't you love those names? Gertrude and Mildred were driving to their Sunday school party one day, and these two elderly sisters were thankful that they could still drive, and so they took turns driving the Buick that they shared with one another. And Gertrude became very nervous after Mildred ran through two red lights. And as she approached the next light, Mildred was talking nonstop and gave no indication that she would stop. And finally, Gertrude shouted, Mildred, the light is red! Mildred immediately slammed on the brakes. As she stared at the red light, she said, I'm sorry, I thought you were driving. So who's in charge? Who's in charge? And that's the question that we asked this morning. And that gets answered in this passage that we're going to be dealing with. Because when Jesus walked the earth, he gathered people around him who were called disciples. You know their names, Peter, James, and John. There were more than just the twelve. But uh, Jesus returned to heaven in Acts 1, but before he did, he told his disciples in Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples. And then throughout the first part of the book of Acts, that's what his disciples did. They traveled from city to city and they preached the gospel and people believed and those who believed were called disciples. That was the identity of those who were a part of this newly founded church. And more than anything else, they were called, referred to, and thought of as disciples. That is the term that Jesus primarily used to describe those who believed in him. And it wasn't until the 11th chapter in the book of Acts that those who were added to the 
to the Lord were referred to as something different. Because in Acts 11.26, it says, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And the term was probably coined by some of the unbelievers that were in that community. And it's rare today, though, for us to refer to a believer as a disciple. It certainly makes its way into our missional statements and our theological writings, but we don't tend to use that term when we address one another. Maybe we'll say that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, or you're my fellow Christian friend, but it doesn't seem quite natural for us to call one another disciple. But it seems these days nearly anyone can call themselves a Christian. If you grew up in the church, if you were baptized as an infant, you might be called a Christian. If you have a worship song on your ringtone, if you have more than three Bibles in your house, you might be called a Christian. If my parents were Christians, I might refer to myself as a Christian. If I listen to Christian music, I might say that I'm a Christian. If my dog listens to Christian music, he might be considered a Christian. But the term disciple, that's different. There's some strings attached to that word, isn't there? The term disciple. Jesus never called us to be Christians. Jesus called us to be a disciple. Throughout the four Gospels, the word disciple is used 264 times. And so when we we reach this point in the Gospel of Luke, there's a transition that's taking place. Luke 14 is a bit of a dividing line within this book. Um, One of the changes that we see from a human perspective is that the number of followers that Jesus had begin to diminish. Prior to Luke 14, the multitudes followed Jesus around. But now Jesus is starting to zero in on some things. If you begin reading with me at verse 25 of chapter 14 of Luke, it says this. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, When he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, well, the other is yet a great way off. He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. At first glance, this is a passage that might leave you scratching your head a little bit, wondering, 
There's this phrase that's repeated three times in this, in this passage. It's the phrase of who cannot be my disciple. Who cannot be my disciple? A strange way of putting it, isn't it? But verse 26, if anyone does not do this, they cannot be my disciple. Next verse, if they don't do this, they cannot be my disciple. At the end, verse 33, if they don't renounce this, they cannot be my disciple. Most of us have a concern for for other people, our friends and our relatives who are not believers and we will go to extraordinary lengths to try to win them to Christ and and, and encourage them and convince them and even plead with them to consider Jesus Christ. We'll do whatever we can think of to win these people. You might even explain to them all the benefits that are involved, all the promises, the fellowship that you can enjoy, all the, all the potlucks that you can enjoy as a Christian. Once you come to Jesus today. But we should also remember that when Jesus went about calling people to follow him, he went about it in a different way than we typically do. When the crowds would grow larger and people would be giddy to get on board with what Jesus was doing, he would respond with statements that could be interpreted as intended to push people away or statements that could be interpreted to try to dissuade them from following him. Statements like, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. And when an unnamed disciple asked Jesus to wait until he can bury his father, Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. When the rich young ruler came up and asked him how he, he could inherit eternal life, Jesus said, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then he said, come and follow me. And we have to ask ourselves, why would Jesus do this? It kind of makes me wonder what a 21st century PR firm would think about Jesus. He was probably one of the clients that would give a PR firm nightmares. (laughs) Just think for a second. Jesus, did you see all those people that were there this afternoon? There were 5,000 people that were there, and that was amazing. But then you said these things, Jesus, and what's that? But the interesting thing is that Jesus did not seem impressed. He did not seem impressed with the multitudes. And as we begin to dig deeper into what Christ's intentions were, we realize that Christ cared much more about the quality of the commitment of his disciples than he did about the number of people that followed him. Because Jesus was was not looking for short-term commitments while he was on this earth. I recently heard one pastor remarking about a well-known bumper sticker that says, God is my co-pilot. The atheist version of that sticker is, my dog is my co-pilot, which is a little blasphemous, but I have to tell you, it would be better for your dog to be your co-pilot than Jesus. Because God does not want to be your co-pilot. In fact, God doesn't even want us in the cockpit. Because co-pilot 
is not what a disciple is. In your bulletin, the East Bay Weekly, we've given a place to jot down some notes. And at the very top of those notes, it says this. A disciple is a learner and a servant. And we could spend a great deal of time uh, going back in the history of the word disciple and how it was used in the New Testament in those times. But at its very basic meaning, it holds these two ideas, a learner and a servant. And of course, there's a counterpart to that because a learner requires a teacher and a servant requires a master. So a disciple is a learner and a servant, which, which also requires a teacher and a master. Because you see, discipleship is not a program. Discipleship is not a seminar. Discipleship is not you latching on to someone more spiritual than you are. Discipleship is when you make Jesus your teacher. Discipleship is when you make Jesus your master. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, he said, and learn, learn from me. And what Jesus was building up to in this passage is that being a disciple is, is an all-or-nothing proposition. It's uh, kind of like jumping off a high dive at the swimming pool. You don't sort of do that. You either do it or you don't do it. Uh, because climbing up the ladder and walking to the end of the diving board and looking down at the water and then backing up in fear and climbing back down the ladder, that's not jumping off a diving board. And for those of you that can remember when they actually had high dives at swimming pools, if you went there, you, went, you climbed up the ladder, and you inched your way out to the end of that diving board, and you took a leap into the air, and you sailed down closer and closer to the water, there was no going back. There was no reverse button that you could hit, was there? Reminds me of another story of Gertrude. She wasn't with her sister this time, but Gertrude was about to make her first parachute jump, and the instructor told her these words. First, you pull the big cord. If that doesn't work, you pull the little cord. There will be a red pickup truck waiting for you when you land. So she went up in the, in the air, and she jumped out, and she pulled the big cord. Nothing happened. So she poured, pulled the little cord. Still nothing happened. She said, that's great. Now I suppose the red truck won't be there either. The story of Gertrude also reminds me of the story of a man who was parachuting for the first time, and he was given the same instructions as she was. And uh, he jumped out of the airplane, and he pulled the cord. The first one, that didn't work. He pulled the second one, that didn't work. And he's frantically scrambling, trying to figure out what to do. And then he looks down, and he notices... There's another person in the air coming up closer to him as he's going down. And so he says, as he's reaching very close to this person, he says, do you know anything about parachutes? And the other man yells back, no, do you know anything about gas stoves? 
you can think about that one for a second. But these are, these are crazy stories because you know that once you go down, there's no going back up, is there? Because you have surrendered yourself. You've surrendered yourself to the demands of gravity. Now, as a disciple, you also surrender yourself to the demands of being a disciple. As a disciple, you are surrendering yourself to the demands of being a disciple. The first demand we need to talk about is the discipleship demands a right relationship. Discipleship demands a right relationship. And there were those who accompanied Jesus, and Jesus wanted to be clear to each and every one of them as to where they stood. And so he wanted them to know that there was a clear line of difference between those who know who Jesus Christ is and those who know Jesus Christ. There's a world of difference between those who know who Jesus Christ is and those who know Jesus Christ. It's the difference between being a fan or a follower. And I recently read that a fan is described as follows. A fan is an enthusiastic admirer. Fans want to be close enough to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires sacrifice. Fans may be fine with repeating a prayer, attending church on the weekend, slapping a Jesus fish on their bumper, but a fan is not someone who knows Jesus because they're cheering on the sidelines. They're, they're not in the game. They're not in the huddle. And the, Jesus loved the crowds and he wanted to let them know where they stood because knowing Jesus is the essence of eternal life. Knowing Jesus is the essence of eternal life. He said in John 17, 3, Jesus Christ himself said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing Jesus is the essence of eternal life. But we understand that knowing people is, is tricky business, isn't it? It's, it's a bit complicated to know people. And J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, he lays out three layers of knowledge he says, first of all, there's knowing about something. Knowing about something. You see, this is, this is the content of your faith. This is the facts and the information. It's the essential part of knowing because I need the data. This goes against the idea that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Because Christianity says that what you believe matters. What you believe matters. And I need to be concerned about the details of my faith because it's not up to me. I don't have that authority in my life. I need the content. I need to understand the elements of the gospel. I need to hunger to study and study and study, hopefully till my last breath, to continue to learn more about God and to understand who I am in God's view. And I need to be correct in that understanding, which brings us to the second layer of knowing, is knowing something personally. And at this point in knowledge or knowing, you accept what you know as true. I not only understand it, but I, I accept that it's not a myth. 
I realize that it's reality and I accept it personally as something that's true, knowing something personally or to give an intellectual assent to it. And so at this point, we can ask, what does this level of knowledge qualify you for? As one person says, all this qualifies you for is to be a demon. Because the devil knows the information and he accepts the information as true. Satan would get 100% on any theology test. And so there's something else that's needed and that's that it is essential to have the third layer and that is knowing a person. Knowing a person is essential. When it comes to God, knowing God requires trust. Knowing God requires faith. You can not only know the information, you can not only believe that it's true, but you must, you must put your faith and trust in a person to provide your salvation. And there's a world of difference between knowing that God exists and then committing your soul and your entire being to the one that you know created you. It's this level of knowing that a person realizes that they have to reveal themselves to the other person. And God has revealed himself to us. We have to reveal ourselves to God, acknowledge who we are before God as a sinner in need of salvation. And so Jesus here is helping the crowds understand those who showed an interest in them to understand the status of their relationship. And uh, number two, discipleship demands also a greater love. Discipleship demands a greater love. And if you look at this verse, verse 26, Jesus says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And if we, if we stop there for just a moment, let those words sink in. These are stunning words. Are we really to understand what Jesus is saying here? Um, here's the man who said that he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. The same scriptures that say, um, that teach us to love and to honor our family, right? I mean, the fifth commandment is... Children, honor your father and your mother. This is the Old Testament scripture that teaches us to love our neighbor as ourselves. So what is Jesus teaching here? The question comes to mind is, is he just wiping out the the, the fifth commandment? Is, Is Jesus just saying, you know, Leviticus 19, love your neighbor? Is he wiping that out? Are we no longer to be loving those closest to us? I like what uh, theologian R.C. Sproul says here. He says, there needs to be an understanding that Jesus is using the word hate as a comparative term. And in line with the Jewish use of this word, the intended idea is not to actually hate, but instead to love less. To love less. So that my love for God is 
to be so great that anything else compared to it seems like hate. In the story of, of Laban giving his daughters in marriage in Genesis 29, it mentions how Leah, the, the wife of Jacob, was hated because she was not the first choice for marriage. But in the verse just prior to that, it says that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. So he loved Leah, he just loved her, he loved her less in a comparative sense. And so what Jesus here is demanding from each disciple is that he is demanding a greater love. He's demanding a greater love. If we look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, Jesus is talking about what it means to love him more than anything else on earth. And notice what he says. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son, whoever loves son or daughter more than me is, is not worthy of me. So put your, put your love for your, your family and your friends on a scale on one side, and then put your love for God on a scale on the other side. How did the two compare with each other? And it's not that we should not have love in our home. Parents should love their kids. Kids should love their parents. But that love should not substitute or supersede. And that's what Jesus is demanding. But what happens as a parent when my love for my child is greater than my love for God? It could be very hard for a parent when, when your will for your kid is different than God's will for your kid. And so your child comes up to you and says, Mom, Dad, you know what? I want to be a missionary in Indonesia. And you're thinking, well... I'm not sure if we want that to happen. We want you closer to home, and we want you where it's safe. We want the grandkids close by. Loving God first is the best way to love your family and your friends. I like what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, when I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, speaking of family and friends, he said, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. The more I love Jesus Christ in my life means that the more I can love all those who are closest to me. And Jesus is demanding that. He demands a greater love for us as the disciples, as his disciples. But number three, Jesus demands a personal sacrifice. Verse 27, it says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now this morning, let's say that I were to come up to you and say that I, I really want to get back in shape because it's been a rough winter, let's admit. Hasn't it been a rough winter? And uh, I said, I'm going to be hitting the gym and uh, I'm going to convince you to come hit the gym together with me. And you're a little bit hesitant at first, but I continue to pester you, and I persist, and I bug you, and eventually you give in. And I'm, I'm telling you how excited I am about this. We're going to eat right. We're going to sleep right. We're going to exercise right. We're going to be in great shape, and it's going to feel so good, and I'm getting you excited about this. And so... We decide to meet at the gym on Monday at 4.30. And you get there right at 
and I don't show up. But you get right on that treadmill, and you're, you're running, and you're running, and uh, you're sweating up a storm, and you're gasping for air, and then you see me pull in through the window 15 minutes late, and I get out, and I've got one of those cups with a red spoon in it, and yeah, that's right, Dairy Queen Blizzard. Extra large Dairy Queen Blizzard. Cookie dough. Double fudge. And I walk right in front of the window. As you're on that treadmill gasping for air, and I finish the last few bites, and I lick the spoon, and I throw it in the trash, and I walk in. What are you going to say to me? Apparently, I had a desire to get in shape, but I lacked personal sacrifice. Jesus said to be a disciple requires personal sacrifice. There will be times that you will have to say no to yourself. Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Fourteen times in the gospel it says, follow me. To follow Jesus means to say no to yourself. But, but if we look closely at those verses, we actually begin to realize that it goes beyond just saying no to ourselves. Because what Jesus is saying here is that you go to a point where you deny your own existence so that Jesus Christ can then live through you. We're to deny ourselves. You see, when you're jumping off that diving board of discipleship, that's what you're, that's what you're doing. Denying yourself, and there's this phrase that keeps cropping up. You see it in verse 27. Bear your cross. Carry your cross. To the, to the first century person, that meant just one thing. To carry your cross meant death. In the most humiliating and painful way. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I mean, can you imagine the public relations people again? You know, Jesus, you know, you started talking about that cross again today. And, you know, I'm not sure if that was the best symbol to talk about. I mean, I think we're going to kind of be scaring people away here, aren't we? I mean, could you have picked something a little bit nicer, like maybe, maybe the dove, right? I mean, it has that nice, peaceful sound that comes out of its mouth. But Jesus talks about the cross. The cross was a form of execution. And the message that Jesus was sending, he was saying these words, it's about a battle of your will. Your will versus God's will. And that's the battle that Jesus fought when he was in the garden before he went to the cross. When Jesus was there, he sat and he prayed to his Father in heaven and he said, thinking about this cross that was about to come, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. 
was Jesus' human side coming out, right? He was not looking forward to the suffering that would be involved there. But yet at the same time, he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If we're going to follow Jesus and carrying his cross, we pick up our cross. We pick up our cross, and it's not going to be about me and what I want, but it becomes about God and what he wants in my life. Because the old me no longer lives here. The old me has died. Discipleship demands a right relationship. Discipleship demands um, knowing the personal cost that's involved. But fourthly, discipleship demands accepting the cost. And Jesus gives two illustrations here. He gives one of a builder, and then he gives one of a king. And we don't have time to get into a lot of this this morning, but before a builder starts to build, he first has to count the cost to see if he can finish the project. Before a king goes to war, he knows if he needs to know if he can actually win that war. Otherwise, he's got to try to find a peace deal. Can he do the job? Can he win the battle? And what Jesus is saying here is that to be my disciple, you have to give up or be willing to give up 25% of everything you have. Is that what he's saying? Jesus says in order to be my disciple, you need to be willing to give up 50% of everything you have. 80%? Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's the cost. That's the cost of discipleship, a willingness to give up everything. Would you be willing to give up all of your possessions for Jesus Christ? It doesn't mean that he's going to require it, but it also doesn't mean that he won't require it either, right? And so what is it that you possess that new bass boat. If Jesus were to say, would you be willing to give that up? Would you? That new truck that you just got or that new car, if Jesus says, would you give that up? Would, would you be willing to do that? That new house that you just moved into, that really nice house, if Jesus said, would you be willing to give that up? Would you be willing to do that? At our recent sportsman's banquet, uh, we had the, the privilege of inviting Gold Star uh, families to our sportsman's banquet. And these are military families that have lost a loved one in combat. And one of the sons that was killed was, was named Matthew. And I was talking to his mother afterward. And uh, she was wearing a button that had this picture of her son on it. And I was talking to her, and I had gathered some of these pictures of all the sons that we were honoring. And I said to Matthew's mom, I said, that picture that you are wearing of your son, that is my favorite picture of him. 
I said, he just seems to be enjoying what he's doing. He seems to be confident in the mission that he's out there to accomplish. And she said to me, that picture was taken on the day that he was killed. He and and two others were led into an ambush by a terrorist, and they were murdered. And she went on to tell me about that day that her son died. And even to this day, they're still looking for his murderer. But you know what I noticed in her eyes? That she was so proud of her son. For what he had done, for what he had accomplished. See, every soldier has a day when they sign on the dotted line. And when they sign on that dotted line, they're acknowledging the cost because they are acknowledging that they will put themselves in harm's way and that might require the greatest sacrifice, their own life. And a disciple knows that that cost could be the very same thing for them. A disciple of Jesus Christ knows that that could be the same cost for them as well. And we live in a time when people would rather have a church experience than have a discipleship experience. And much of that has to do with the fact that we've lost a word in our Christian vocabulary And I'll tell you what that word is in just a second. But first I wanted to show you this. Uh, This is the Christian flag. You might be familiar with that, and it's sort of a thing of the past. But the idea of this flag was conceived in 1897 in Brooklyn, New York. And the superintendent of a Sunday school, Charles Overton, had given an impromptu, impromptu speech because the scheduled speaker had not shown up. And so he gave a speech asking the students what a flag representing Christianity would look like. And then for 10 years, he thought about that speech and he thought about that response that he received. And 10 years later, he designed a flag and he started to promote it. In the upper corner is a blue square, the color of an unclouded sky symbolizing the Christian's home. In the center of the blue is a cross, the chosen symbol of Christianity. The cross is red in color to signify Christ's blood. And the field or the background of that flag is white to represent the purity of Christ, but also to mirror another well-known flag, the flag of truce. The flag of truce goes all the way back to the first century when the Romans started to use the white flag to concede defeat. Before this, they used to take their shields and hold them above their head, but now they use this white flag. And it was, this flag of truce was used throughout the years and it followed even to the time of the Civil War and then into our present day. Today we know this flag as the flag of of surrender. The flag of surrender. 
You see, the word that we've lost in our Christian vocabulary is a word that represents the design of the Christian flag. It's the word surrender. It's the word surrender. And to wave the Christian flag is to wave the flag of surrender, where you say to God, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, that I will surrender my will to your will. I'll surrender my will to your will. And I close with this. C.S. Lewis says, All who are called to salvation are called to discipleship. No exceptions, no excuses. All who, call, who are called to salvation are called to discipleship. No exceptions, no excuses. And that requires surrender. But Jesus said, he who gives his life for me will gain his life. And that's the hope that we have as the disciple. Jesus demands a right relationship. He demands a greater love. He demands a personal sacrifice. And he demands accepting the cost. And I got to tell you, it's the best thing that will ever happen to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these good words from Jesus this morning. We know that these are challenging words from Jesus this morning. And at times we wonder if they're words that we can even fulfill because of the demand that's placed on us. And I think of the words of Jesus to his disciples when they were asking about eternal life and Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to make it into heaven. And his disciples responded, Lord, then who can make it? And Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. Because, Lord, we know that you have given us the ability to believe you and to have faith in you. We know it's not based on our works that we earn our way but it's based on your grace. And we accept that gift that then empowers us to live the life that you've called us to live. We pray for that outpouring of grace in our lives, that we'd see you for who you are, that we'd see ourselves for who we are as well. That we'd be willing to surrender our lives to you not once a week, not once a month, but on a daily basis so that you can fulfill your work in us. We pray this in the precious name of our Savior and your Son, Jesus Christ.